And please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some, so you can lift up your hand and we will get one over to you right now. Acts 21. Same chapter we were in last week, but a different section of that chapter. We're going to start reading at verse 15. And read on down through verse 26. So Acts 21, verses 15 through 26. And Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray. Father God, this is your word that has been read, and I pray that as the word is preached this morning, as it goes forth, that you'll give us ears to hear, that you will help us to understand what you want to say to us this morning, God. Guide Steve as he preaches, Lord, let him be filled with the Spirit, but I also pray that we would be Spirit-filled listeners, that we would receive the Word with gladness and would believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Just a question to the kids to start off this morning. How many of you, and let's be honest, just love to outdo your brother or your sister? You like to just get the upper hand. You like to outdo them, okay? Whatever it might be. Maybe you're competing. There's two honest children in the room. Maybe you're competing at something, and you just want to be there. You can put your hands down now. Don't don't wallow in it. All right. Maybe you're competing at something, and you want to be the first. Or maybe there's a certain seat at the table that all the kids want to sit at. You want to be the first one there, and you want to get that place of honor. Uh, whatever it might be, we could think of a thousand scenarios. And, and, but just within your human nature is this desire to get, a, to, to get an advantage of to over and to, to beat your brother or sister, to outdo them. Did you know 
the Bible actually tells you to outdo one another? It does. Okay, Olivia, your eyes just lit up like, I've got justification now for my actions. No, it's right. It does, but not in the way you think. In Romans chapter 12, the Bible tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. The only thing you should be trying to outdo your brother or sister in is in showing honor. That means you give up that seat at the table or you give up that chance to be the first one there. You give up that right or that situation where you say, that's not fair, I deserve this. Well, in today's text today, we see Paul demonstrating this ability, this spiritual ability to outdo one another in showing honor. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, an illustration that I ran across this morning that helped, uh, helps to illustrate what's happening in today's text. I read a story about a, uh, a man who was uh, visiting a hospital. And as you guys all know, when you've gone to hospitals, sometimes it's very hard to find a parking space. And he couldn't find a good parking space, and he weaved through the parking lot. And this hospital was on a, on a medical campus, really. There were more than one building, and it was a big, long parking lot. I don't know if it had decks in it or what, but he finally found a parking space, parked his car. But by the time he got out of his car and began to try to find his way back to the front door of the building he was going to in this hospital complex, he was lost. And he just began to wander, look, trying to figure out where to go, when another man in a car pulled up beside him and said, do you need help? And he said, yes, I, I can't find where I'm going. He said, hold on, let me go park, where you, park over here where you are, and then I'll walk with you. I know exactly how to get to the front door. So he goes and he parks his car beside this man's car out in the boondocks there in the parking lot, and he, and he walks with him, and they walk all the way to the hospital. And as they're approaching the front door of the hospital there, the man asks him, well, you know, who are you? And the gentleman shares, well, I am the chief surgeon of the hospital here. And as they're walking in the front door there, there's an empty parking space with a sign on it that says Chief Surgeon right there at the front door as they walked in. And it just serves as a beautiful illustration, really, of what's going to happen in this text today. And this is a difficult text today, and, and, and you'll see that as we get into it. Um, but it demonstrates what Paul's doing when he gets to Jerusalem. That doctor had every right to park in his space and to leave that man out there wandering, or even just give him directions verbally and say, okay, I hope you, hope you can find your way now. But instead, he parked his car way out there beside this man's car, gave up his right, his parking space that's right by the front door, in order for this man to be able to find his way to the hospital building. And we'll see Paul doing that today. We'll see Paul parking spiritually his car in a place where he doesn't have to because he has rights that he's willing to sacrifice in order to help some brothers, and to help a church in particular uh, grow closer to the Lord and uh, to help the gospel spread in Jerusalem. Now, before we get into the text, though, uh, I need to bring us up to speed a little bit here. We are continuing in our uh, journey through the book of Acts, and we are um, approaching the final stretch here. We are sprinting toward the finish line. Um, after today's text, I imagine we'll be biting off some pretty big chunks of Scripture because Paul will now go into a series of trials. He has four different hearings, I'm sorry, six different hearings that he will have as we go to the end of the book here. And, um, and we'll bite off some pretty big chunks and, and, and as we come close to the end here of the book. We began this series almost, almost three years ago, believe it or not. 
But uh, we are finishing Acts here soon. Now, I want to bring up, a, go and bring up the next slide for me. Let's see if this works. There we go. I want to remind us, I want us to catch up to Paul here. I want to remind us of what he's done on this third missionary journey. I think it's important for a couple of reasons. But um, here he, he starts off in Antioch, which was his home base. That was the church where he was sent out from with, with Barnabas way back on the first missionary journey. He begins his third missionary journey and heads through these regions of Cilicia um, and, um, and Galatia, or I mean in Phrygia and Galatia. And he comes over here to Asia Minor. Now this is not Asia as we think of Asia today. It was referred to Asia back during those days. We call Asia Minor. And he stops off in Asia Minor for a quite a long time here in the city of Ephesus. Let's see if I can find it. Right there, in the city of Ephesus, to um, spend a good bit of time there doing ministry. That's where we stopped our series of Acts, uh, when we were going through Acts. We stopped there in Ephesus, and we actually looked through the book of Ephesians, and we, we preached through that for a while, and now we're back uh, in Acts. But after spending three years in Ephesus, he heads on up, goes, crosses over the sea here, and continues his journey into Macedonia, which is Europe. This is, this is Greece and he continues his journey there, strengthening the churches as he goes. Also during this time, he had had quite a bit of correspondence with a church down here called of Corinth. Um, because there were some serious problems in Corinth. So part of the reason for going up through Macedonia and down towards Corinth is he wanted to visit this church of his that he had planted, which was having a lot of problems. But while on this journey through Macedonia, and this is important, he was um, encouraging the people to... to um, give a gift to the Jerusalem church. He was, he was organizing a collection of money for the Jerusalem church because back over here in Jerusalem, right down here in Judea, there had been lots of issues and problems uh, related to what they were going through. The church in Jerusalem, as we'll see here in a little bit, could have been as big as 50,000 people in the Jerusalem church. It's a very, very big church in Jerusalem. But once you became a believer in Christ and identified yourself with Christ in Jerusalem, you, you were essentially, in the eyes of the Jews, denying uh, your faith, in, denying your Judaism, and therefore you became ostracized from the community. And so this church had a lot of, uh, prob lot of uh, challenges they were facing financially because of being ostracized. Imagine, let's say you were a, um, a carpenter, just as, as Jesus' Uh, earthly father was, and as Jesus probably was as he grew up, you were a carpenter and you become a believer and you become ostracized because of that. No one visits your, your shop anymore. Uh, not to mention the widows and the orphans who depended upon the work of the temple. Who The temple ministry was supposed to take care of widows and orphans who were in need, but if they became believers, they became ostracized. And so the church was overwhelmed with a lot of, of challenges and a lot of um, a benevolence ministry that needed to happen, and they were, they were poor, they were impoverished. And so Paul, knowing this, and also with a deep-seated desire for the church to show solidarity and unity, begins a collection, as he's going through the churches here, of money for the Jerusalem church. So he comes down on his third missionary journey, stops the, right here in Corinth for a few months, where he writes this little book you may have heard of called The Letter to the Romans. He writes that while he's in Corinth. Uh, he intends at that time to leave Corinth on a ship heading back towards Syria in order to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. But while he's there in Corinth, he discovers there's a plot against his life. 
And so he doesn't get on that ship. Now, we don't know what the plot was. Perhaps the Jews who were making the pilgrimage back to Judea had planned on throwing Paul off the ship or something on the way there. We don't know. But he decides not to take that ship and instead circles back through Macedonia with an with a entourage of Gentile believers. Now, I think it's very interesting. I, I was thinking about that this week because um, some commentators commenting on the passage Deemer preached on last week would say that Paul was wrong for going to Jerusalem. He should have heeded the warnings of those who were telling him he was going to suffer persecution. And that Paul just sort of had this martyr syndrome, and he went on anyway, and he was sinning in doing so. Well, I obviously don't believe that's the case. And obviously from Deemer's sermon last week, we don't believe that that's the case. We believe that Paul was compelled to go to Jerusalem, despite the fact that he knew, the Spirit had already borne witness to him, that he was going to suffer there in Jerusalem. Paul didn't just have some sort of martyr complex or else he'd have gotten on the ship right there in Corinth. And once he heard about the plot against his life, oh well, I'll just die for Jesus, I'm going to get on the ship. Paul moved according to how the Holy Spirit led him. And the Holy Spirit led him not to get on that ship, but instead to circle back through these churches, continue to strengthen them, and be back in Judea. This time, he's not going to make it by the time for Passover, but maybe he can make it for Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. So he's in a hurry here. That's why when he comes over here uh, in Acts chapter 20, he doesn't go into Ephesus, but instead stays right there on the coast so he can continue to get the ships he needs in order to get back to Jerusalem. But he loves the Ephesian church, so he calls the elders to himself, and there's that great passage in Ephesus 20 that we, I mean, in Acts 20 that we spent, oh, I think six weeks on. Now he uh, begins to go through these cities. Demer preached through this last week, and he, they continue to witness to him that he's going to suffer. He knows that. He's going to head on anyway. He knows that God's calling him to do this hard task of, of, of going to Jerusalem and suffering persecution. And we left off last week. He's actually in Caesarea, okay, which is right there, about 68 miles from Jerusalem. He's in the house of Philip. And if you'll remember last week in the text we read, Philip was one of the original seven uh, disciples, of the seven um, deacons that we read of in Acts chapter 6. And we pick it up in Acts chapter 21, verse 15. It says, After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Now, you may be asking, what's he mean up to Jerusalem? Because, oops, sorry guys, go back to that for me. Up to Jerusalem, because Caesarea is right here and Jerusalem's down. Wouldn't he be going down to Jerusalem? Well, we've got we to remember that um, the, in the Jewish mind, um, in, in, the, in, the, in, in, in that day and age, we think of up being north and down being south, but they referred to up and down based upon the geography. And Jerusalem was on a mountain, it was on a hill. So, the, so from any direction, you were going up to Jerusalem. And besides the fact that that terminology was also used for Jerusalem in reference to its high standing as the spiritual capital of Judaism, if you will. And so they were going up to Jerusalem. It says in verse 16, And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. So now he's even got a bigger entourage. He's got all these Gentiles coming from all these other lands. Now he's also got more uh, believers from Caesarea with him. And they brought us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple. Now the language here referring to him as an early disciple probably refers to him being one of the first disciples at all in the church. He may have been one of the 120 that were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. We don't know. But I do think it's interesting that Luke points out that Paul has stopped in the home of Philip and also in the home of Nason, one of the very first disciples. And the reason I think it's interesting is because Paul's about to run into some controversy 
in Jerusalem. And I think one of the things Luke's trying to show here is that the very earliest disciples were on board with Paul and believed in what Paul was doing and supported Paul's ministry. And not only that, allowed Paul and his Gentile converts into their home and showed great hospitality to them. So Philip and also Nason invited him into their home. So now he's in Jerusalem. He's home. Now Tarsus was his hometown of birth. Okay, Tarsus is right up here. That's where Paul was born. Okay, and Antioch was his sending church, but Jerusalem in many ways was his hometown. That was where he was raised and educated. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the best of the best when it came to Pharisaical rabbis. And there he was, and that's where he had grown up, and he walks into Jerusalem. And I can only imagine the, the feelings, his feelings, as he comes back. He hasn't been there in a while. It's been at least four or five years since he's been in Jerusalem, perhaps longer than that. And he walks into Jerusalem, and I remember as a child coming back from overseas uh, um, on furlough as a missionary kid, we'd come back every two to three years, we would come back to the States. And, and unless you've experienced that and been gone for a long time, and then come back, especially to a foreign country and come back, you really can't explain how that feels. The smells, the sounds, emotions, the, the memories that come flooding back. And I can imagine that's what Paul's feeling as he comes back here. And also, things change over time. Have you ever been away from somewhere for years and then you go back and there's new buildings there that weren't there before and there are old buildings that were there that are gone now and things just sort of change and, and people change. I remember the difference between coming home and furlough in 1985 and then again in 1987, my cousin and I were best of friends growing up and something changed between 85 and 87 and my cousin changed a lot and I'm sure I changed a lot too and, and our relationship was never the same after that. And he got into a lot of stuff that only by God's grace, I didn't get into uh, as far as drugs and alcohol and other things. And our relationship was never the same after that. It's never been the same after that. And we were the best of friends. And, and so things change. And Paul's coming back to Jerusalem here. And, and things have changed to a certain degree. Now when he gets there, it says in verse 17 that they were received gladly. That they were gladly received. Gladly because I'm sure the church was happy to see Paul and and these Gentiles believers with him, but also because of the offering he's bringing. Okay? He brings this offering, and surely that was a great relief and brought great joy to the people in Jerusalem. And then the next day, it's time for the missionary report. Now, if you guys grew up in Southern Baptist churches, you're familiar with missionary reports. How many of you guys remember missionaries coming to your church and giving their little report? Okay? Uh, maybe other denominations as well, but... You know, my, I, I, we did that when we came back. We were required by the International Mission Board to go to several churches and many churches as we could while we were home and, and give a missionary report. My parents would always put on their Ecuadorian garb, which was silly because they didn't wear that in Ecuador anyway. But for whatever reason, they felt compelled to put on Ecuadorian native clothes when they came and gave their missionary report. So we'd come and, and we'd lay out our little Ecuadorian trinkets and, and mom would sing Steve Green's People Need the Lord. And uh, I heard that song so many times to this day, it's really hard for me to listen to it. Um, so don't lead people need the Lord, please. No, you can if you feel compelled. Um, so they, they, they sing, sing that song, and then Dad would get the old slide projector out and, you know, start going, now this is a picture of, uh, and he'd stumble, uh, 
Becky, who is that there? Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's right. That's that pastor down in the jungle that we minister to. And then it gets stuck, you know. But anyway, I doubt Paul had a slide projector or any garb from Macedonia on. Uh, he just came back and gave the report. And it was a spectacular report. Verse 19 says, And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. One by one. This was a detailed report. Okay, it wasn't just general, hey, yeah, God's just blessing things out there. It's just, it's just wonderful. I mean, that's kind of, kind of how we refer. I mean, pastors, we kind of have this, this very generic phrase when another pastor says, well, how's your church going? Oh, it's just great. God's blessing it. Yeah. You know, the church building could have burnt down yesterday and there's no members left and pastors would still say that. Okay? And then, unfortunately, in our culture, the next question is, well, what are you running? What are your numbers? We, we base God's blessings on the wrong things sometimes. But anyway, that's another subject. But Paul doesn't just give some sort of general, oh yeah, it's wonderful over there. He goes one by one describing the things that God had done. It says here that God had done. This is important because Paul continually gives God the glory for all that has been accomplished in his ministry. That's just the hallmark of Paul. He's always giving God the glory. I mean, if anybody had a right to take a little bit of credit, what did Paul? I mean, my goodness, the guy, he's trekked the globe three times now. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He's been everything on earth that could have happened to someone has happened to him. Matter of fact, when he got stoned, he stood back up and walked right back into the town that had just stoned him. He's written half the New Testament. I mean, if anybody can give themselves at least a little pat on the back, it would be Paul, right? Well, no, because Paul understood the gospel better than any of us probably do. And he knew that he couldn't take any credit for anything that had happened in his life in regards to the gospel. And God got all the glory. And you'll notice when God gets the glory, he also gets the worship. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And when they heard it, they glorified God. When God gets the credit, he also gets the worship. Think about that the next time we're tempted, and we all are in our flesh, to, to at least put a little bit of us in there in that report of what God's doing, either in our life or in our work or in our church, and, and get a little bit of a pat on the back that every time we do that, we're stealing worship from the one who deserves it. We're stealing it from God. When they heard it, they glorified God. They simply glorified God because Paul had been careful to give God the credit. And this is very important. If we're going to understand what Paul does later in this passage, we need to see his humility here. We need to see that this man was not an egomaniac. We need to see that he didn't go out of his way to draw attention to himself. Instead, his heart was for God, and his heart was for God to be magnified among all men everywhere. And James has a good report about Jerusalem, too. He says um, um, in verse 20, You see, brothers... How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? Thousands, he says. The word here is myriads. Myriads. And, and, and the word myriad in the Greek usually referred to at least 10,000. And he uses it in the plural form. There's at least 10,000 believers there, probably 20,000 or more. There are a lot of Jewish Christians in the Jer Jerusalem church. And there's even a lot more here at this time because in the Pentecost... During the days of Pentecost, it was a great time of pilgrimage, and a lot of more people came from different parts of the empire there. And many Christians, perhaps, Jewish Christians, had come to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this time of Pentecost. But then James says this. 
They are all zealous for the law. And at this point, I think if we're honest, the text takes a bit of a strange turn for us. What what do you mean they're zealous for the law? And here James introduces a tension that was floating in the air there in the Jerusalem church as Paul arrives. You see, there was a problem in the church which was coming to a head right now as Paul walks into Jerusalem. So I want to ask us three questions real quick here. Okay, what, is the, what was the problem? Who had caused the problem? And what was to be done about it? Well, what's the problem? Well, look at verse 21. It says that they had, he's referring here to these zealous Jewish Christians who are zealous for the law. It says, verse 21, And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So a lie has been spread amongst the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that Paul was going out of his way while he's in all these Gentile lands to tell the Jews who lived in these Gentile lands not to be circumcised, don't circumcise your children, okay, and forsake Moses. And the word forsake here is the word that's related to apostatize. In other words, totally deny the faith. Walk away from Moses. And this was a lie. This was a vicious rumor about Paul that had feet. And it was causing a serious problem in the church. And it was a serious problem even more so now because Paul's in town. Why would these Jewish believers even somewhat entertain this report about Paul? Well, there's a few different reasons. Let me just give us a little bit of background here. First of all, there's some political reasons. Uh, This is around A.D. 57 or 58, somewhere around there when this is taking place. And in Judea at this time, there's a lot of unrest. The Jewish um, historian Josephus describes these years as a period of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another was, was rising up. Uh, to challenge Rome, and Felix, who was the governor of Rome, at the, I mean, governor of Judea at this time, brutally suppressed every one of those insurrections. And so the Jews hated Rome all the more, and that hatred was increasing at an alarming rate. It'll reach its boiling point in 13 years in A.D. 70, at which point Rome will wipe Jerusalem off the map of the earth, off the face of the earth. But At this point, while Paul's here, there's just tremendous anti-Gentile sentiment being stirred up in Jerusalem. Any type of friendliness towards Gentiles was frowned upon. Now, considering these things, Paul's mission to the Gentiles wasn't exactly real good PR for the church. Add to that fact that he entered town with a whole entourage of Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church is a little nervous. Now, you may be saying, well, surely the church, believers in Jesus Christ, weren't affected by all this secular political stuff, right? Hmm. Does the church today get affected by secular political stuff? Hmm. It's easy for us to say, separated by so many years, that, and to judge them for being so easily swayed by some of the political winds, but we are easily swayed by the political winds of our time as well. We are too susceptible to the lure of blind nationalism. 
So we don't need to be too judgmental. So that's some of the political um, context, but also there's some cultural reasons and some spiritual reasons which are t- closely tied together. And the fact of the matter is that, that there are many Christians here in this church who had truly embraced Christ as Savior by faith alone, but they were still struggling to, to understand what this meant for their Judaism, what this meant for all the customs and the, and the, the cultural and ceremonial aspects of their faith. The old vestige of Judaism was hard to put off. Now that the Messiah had come and that they had embraced the Messiah by faith, they had a hard time figuring out what to do with all of this stuff that had been pointing to Christ. Frankly, they had a hard time trying to figure out how to embrace their Jewishness while letting go of their Judaism. Traditions and rituals and religious ceremonies are not categorically evil. What is evil is when one puts his hope in traditions and rituals and, and uh, customs for salvation. God would once, and all, once for all do away with the temple and the sacrificial system and a lot of the other customs that were related to the physical presence of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70, as I mentioned earlier, when the Romans would destroy Jerusalem. And by the way, when they destroyed Jerusalem, they also destroyed 900 other Jewish towns. They pretty much wiped out Judea at that time. And so there were some who had infiltrated the church, some who hated Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, who were ready to take advantage of this this confusion in the church and this period of transition. And, And so this leads us to the next question, who caused the problem here? Apparently a false teaching had infiltrated both the Jewish and Gentile churches through the teachings of these guys that we know of called the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught that the only way to be saved was not only to put your faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but also on top of that, or added to that, follow the, Jude- the, 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 the Mosaic law. Specifically, circumcision and Sabbath keeping. So the acceptance of the Gentiles, period, was a difficult thing for Jerusalem church from the get-go. In Acts chapter 11, after Paul in Acts chapter 10 had, had witnessed to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his family, Peter brings the report to the church, and the church has a hard time dealing with that. Some of those who were part of the party of the Pharisees who had become Christians, or at least apparently had become Christians, struggled with the fact that these Gentiles were now being included, and struggled really with the fact that Peter had gone to their house and witnessed to them. And then these Judaizers in Acts chapter 15 went into some of the Gentile churches and really began to stir up confusion. We read in Acts chapter 15 verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these men who were saying that were not true believers because they were adding something to the gospel. They were saying, unless you keep the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is contrary to the gospel. The gospel is Jesus alone. You place your, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so Paul and Barnabas took issue with this, and they took the issue to James and the church in Jerusalem. And that's when we read in Acts chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council confirmed what Paul and Barnabas were teaching, that no, yes, you The only thing you need to be saved is faith in the Messiah, faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so they weren't going to impose this burden of Mosaic law on the Gentiles. Instead, it says that they wrote to them to abstain from the things polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, and from what had been strangled, 
and from blood. But that didn't stop the Judaizers. They kept on going and they wreaked havoc in almost every church Paul planted. And now in Jerusalem they were spreading lies about Paul's teachings. The Judaizers saw an opportunity to turn the zeal of these believers to their advantage by spreading rumors about Paul. It says here that they had been told, the believers had been told. That word is catechized. They had been catechized about Paul. They had been catechized that he was teaching all the Jews who were among the Gentiles to forsake, apostatize Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. Had Paul done this? Is this what he had done? Well, he had been in agreement with the Jerusalem council, and he told and preached to the Gentiles that they did not have to keep the law in order to be saved. The law never could and never would save anyone, even the Jews. Paul did not, did, not, did not deny the freedom of Jews to maintain the practice of their ancestral Jewish customs. Matter of fact, he himself still kept a lot of the Jewish customs. In one passage of Scripture, we read that Paul was under a Nazarite vow, which included even sacrifices when you finish that vow. Yet he clearly did preach that the law was no longer necessary, for it had been fulfilled in Christ. It had been accomplished It had been a guardian or a caretaker, according to Paul's words in Galatians, to lead us to Christ. Paul's teaching is clear regarding circumcision. Jews should not seek to undo their circumcision, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 18. However, physical circumcision is not of of any spiritual value, according to Galatians 6, 15. But he did have Timothy circumcised in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, because Timothy was a Jew, and the lack of circumcision would have been a hindrance to the gospel being spread as they went from synagogue to synagogue. Paul does not teach non-observance to Jews, but neither does he insist on any sort of observance, especially when Gentiles are involved. Paul knew there was essentially no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We read about that in Ephesians. We see it in Galatians 3, 28 as well. And that conversion to Christianity required no physical acts. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Jewish ceremonial symbols, feasts, sacrifices. He was the perfect law keeper. He observed all of God's law perfectly. And if we are true believers in Christ, then he did it on our behalf and satisfied God's legal demands. And in doing so, we are no longer bound by the law, but are living in the law of liberty and the law of love through the Spirit of God in union with Christ. But the damage had been done here. And what were the Jerusalem elders to do? Which is our next question. What's to be done about it? That's exactly what James says. What then is to be done? It gives me great comfort as an elder to see that other elders ask the same question sometimes. What do we do? What's to be done? Okay? It's okay. Elders don't have to have all the, que- all the answers. But he's wondering, what are we going to do here? Certainly they will hear that you've come. And he says this, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment. So here they're, they're reaffirming Acts chapter 15. We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. The elder's solution was for Paul to give a tangible, visible demonstration of his commitment to and observance of the law. Did Paul have to do this? Absolutely not. 
Paul did not have to do this in any sort of way. Now, we don't have a lot of time here to talk about this vow that these four men were under, but it is a Nazarite vow. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6, verses 14 through 19. But it did involve them having, after having um, um, not shaven their head for at least 30 days, when they finished the vow, they would shave their head and, and cast that hair onto the altar with their sacrifices, and it would involve a multiple amount of sacrifices, a male lamb for a burnt offering, a female lamb for a sin offering, a ram for a peace offering, a basket of unleavened cakes and wafers for a grain offering, and a drink offering. So one can only imagine how costly these sacrifices were. And so it was a pretty heavy burden that these men were putting on Paul, asking him not only to purify himself and go with these men, but to pay for their expenses. And when Paul had to purify himself, that comes from Numbers chapter 19, verse 12, where, the Gentile, where, where Jews were expected to go through a seven-day ritual purification after spending time in Gentile lands. Now it's very important, though, in verse 25, that James and the Jerusalem elders repeat the apostolic decree concerning the Gentiles issued at the Council of Jerusalem. Okay? Luke wants us to see here that these Jewish elders were not reversing their decision, and they still understood that grace came through faith alone. This... This prescription for salvation was grace through faith alone, not law-keeping. So Paul, without violating his convictions regarding the gospel, goes along with their plan and submits to their lead. Which leads me to a fourth question. I didn't mention it earlier, but a fourth question, which will bring us to the two points that are in your notes. How did Paul react? What does he do here? I think we learn a lot from this text in looking at what Paul did not do. He did not become defensive. He does not get defensive and say, those lions, stinking Judaizers, and those foolish Christians who are zealous for the law, don't they have a clue? And begin to to defend himself. He does not become indignant or annoyed. He did not question the competence of the Jerusalem leaders. I can imagine saying, James, how did you let this get out of hand like this? You got these thousands of zealous Jews for the law. Have you not explained to them grace? He doesn't do that. He doesn't get indignant with James. And we know that he wasn't afraid to confront other leaders face to face. He did that with Peter in Galatians. He does not publicly censure these Jewish believers who had foolishly been influenced by the Judaizers and by the political mood of their day and say, you weak Christians, I can't believe you're listening to this stuff. He doesn't jump all over their case. He does not become self-righteous or look down on the weak faith of the Jewish believers. He does not elevate himself and belittle them. He did not complain about the unreasonableness of the financial stress this would put on him. But most interestingly, he did not avail himself of his gospel rights or freedom. There is nothing... Nothing in God's word that demands that he needs to do this. He has been set free from the law. He does not have to do this at all. But he doesn't avail himself of his gospel rights or freedoms. Why? Because he knew the difference. A difference that I think we struggle with sometimes. He knew the difference between a false faith built on false teaching like that of the Judaizers. And he knew when to confront them and to deal with that harshly and directly and and on the nose and not have any part with it. 
He knew the difference between that and the weak faith of these zealous Jewish Christians. They weren't Judaizers. They believed in Christ alone, but they were confused. They were struggling. The Bible doesn't say they were not believers. It directly calls them believers. They had put their faith in Christ, but they had a, a weak faith built upon perhaps some weak teaching, definitely built upon some influences that had come into their life that were negative. Why did he not avail himself of his gospel rights or freedoms? Because he puts into practice here what he preaches. In Romans 12, 16, it says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He could have gotten the guns out and just gone to town. He's the Apostle Paul, for goodness sakes. He has fought this battle all on the mission field. And he comes back to Jerusalem and has to deal with it here. And he could have just taken them to task, but he doesn't. He doesn't. So I've got two points here that were going to kind of be the conclusion of our sermon. Our points come out of the conclusion today. Number one, Paul sacrificed his rights and freedom for the sake of the church. Paul sacrificed his rights and freedom for the sake of the church. Paul's actions are difficult for us to understand, but even more difficult for us to practice because we live in a personal rights culture. We live in a it's-not-fair culture. I have my rights. I have my parking space. How, do, how dare you infringe upon my rights? It's not fair. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I have worked like crazy for the gospel, and I come and I get treated like this? I don't deserve this. That's the way we live today. That's our culture. Our culture says, you get what's fair for you. You get what your rights are. No matter what anyone else has to say about it. Stand up for your rights. Paul loved the body of Christ and he wanted to see it united. He wanted to see Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, worshiping in unity. The offering that he brought was a token of that unity. This offering from the Gentiles was a token of that unity. Paul loved the church and desired to see the church united in Christ. And that trumped any rights he felt or freedoms he knew he had in Christ. Paul had a better grasp of his freedom than anyone else in the world. He understood that shadows, these, these ceremonial and religious shadows that the author of Hebrews speaks of, which are the old covenant symbols and customs and laws, he understood that those had been replaced by the substance, which was Jesus Christ, yet he doesn't let his great knowledge puff him up to an egocentric, theological egghead who cares nothing about those who just don't get it. These Jews just don't get it. This is 25 years after Christ has ascended. The church is growing in its faith and growing in its understanding. And the ones who had the hardest time grasping the freedom we have in Christ were those who were so closely bound to the Jewish law. These Jewish believers were growing in their understanding of this. And Paul doesn't come in and say, you guys are idiots. Don't you get the gospel, you fools? With some big ego... 
Theological arrogance is so dangerous. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul wrote those words while he's in the church in Ephesus, ministering there and writing to the church in Corinth, which is filled with a bunch of theological eggheads and prideful men and women who really don't even understand what true Christian freedom is. And he writes this to them. And he comes back to Jerusalem and he has to put into practice what he wrote so many years before. Love drives Paul as he considers James' request. He's not falling into some sort of weak compromise here. Now, let me say this, though. There are some commentators that believe Paul is sinning by doing this. I don't believe so. Matter of fact, the commentators that believe Paul is sinning in doing this are the same ones who believe Paul was sinning in going to Jerusalem in the first place. So basically, they think, and James Boyce is one of them, who believes that Paul began a pattern of sin that began the moment he didn't listen to those who were telling him he was going to be persecuted in Jerusalem. And he, he, was, he just went on anyway. And because of that, it set off a series of events that leads to his arrest. And so, so some commentators believe that Paul was actually arrested as a result of his sin. I don't believe that's the case here. I believe Paul is compelled by the Spirit. And I don't think the Spirit has led up at all here as Paul considers James' request. This isn't some sort of weak compromise. Instead, it's a conciliatory and charitable act toward weaker brothers whose faith is fragile and whose minds have been polluted by some bad teaching. Let me say that again. He's not falling into a weak compromise. Instead, he is conciliatory and charitable toward some weaker brothers whose faith is fragile and whose minds have been polluted by some bad teaching. Do you know any brothers whose minds have been polluted by some bad teaching? What's your attitude towards them? How do you treat them? 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. How do we treat brothers and sisters who differ from us theologically? How do we treat those who are clearly out of bounds scripturally? Do we beat them down? Do we exercise our theological might and our rhetorical superiority? Do we not even dare associate with them lest we be seen as compromisers? How many of us are scared to associate with a brother who we know is at a, in, a, in a ministry that we believe is teaching some pretty bad junk and we don't even want to know, hang out with that brother because we'll be seen as compromising when Paul does the exact opposite of that here in this text? Sure. I'll go do this. I don't have to. But I'm going to do it for the sake of the church. We're too scared to be seen as compromisers when in reality all we're doing is stroking our own bloated egos. It is not necessarily capitulation to fellowship with a brother who may be really off theologically. And, let's face it, we're probably off theologically in quite a few places as well. Because we are sinners, we too struggle to interpret the scriptures rightly. Oh, how we can learn charitable, conciliatory love for the brothers, especially brothers who have endured some very tough circumstances. 
Brothers who are having a hard time letting go of some pretty long-standing traditions and customs. Do you know any brothers who have a hard time letting go of some, some traditions and customs that we've established in the evangelical church today? Brothers who have perhaps been influenced by some very bad teaching. Clothe yourselves, all of you, Peter says, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Romans 12, 3. For by grace given to me I say to every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And Paul would later write in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. F.F. Bruce has a great comment on this text. Matter of fact, every other commentator quotes him, and I'm going to quote him here. He says, A truly emancipated spirit, such as Paul's, is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Did you get that? Emancipated kids means a spirit that's been set free, just as the slaves were emancipated. Okay? A truly emancipated spirit, such as Paul's, is not in bondage to its own emancipation. You see, our freedom in Christ can easily become an idol in and of itself. The word of Christ, the work of Christ, and the glory of Christ come before our freedom in Christ. If any of those have to go for the sake of others, it's our freedom. Which brings me to my second point. Paul sacrificed his rights and freedom for the sake of the gospel. Paul sacrificed his rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.15, he's referring here to his right to be paid. In other words, he has a right to receive uh, payment from the churches and to be, have his needs supplied for by the churches. But he says here in 1 Corinthians 9, but I have made no use of any of these rights. Perhaps more of us elders should memorize that verse and not get upset when churches can't pay us. And then in verse 19 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it, verse 23, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I, might, that I may share with them in its blessings. People have taken this text so out of context, especially in our world today. When the people say this, well, Paul was all things to all men, and they use that text as a license to do whatever you want to do in the church to try to reach people. So you know what? You want to have Steve preach in a clown suit? Well, let's do all things by all means to say by all means save some, right? That's, that flips this verse on its head. Paul's talking about restricting his own freedoms for the sake of the gospel. He became all things to all men by setting aside his rights and his privileges and his freedoms so that he could see more come to faith in Christ. Basically, Acts chapter 21 that we're looking at today is the narrative example of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 lived out. 
There were unbelieving Jews watching him. There were weaker brothers watching him. And Paul didn't arrogantly do what he was free to do and say, forget everyone else. No, he knows that the church is so precious and the gospel was so important that he needed to give up his rights so that others might hear the gospel and be saved. That was the heartbeat of Paul's ministry. The question we need to ask is, is it our heartbeat? And the question that we need to be asking ourselves isn't, are we allowed to do this or that, but is what we are going to do best for the gospel and best for the church? Paul does not show weakness in this text. Instead, he demonstrates Christ-like meekness. So Paul does it. He follows the advice of the Jerusalem elders. In reality, he submits to their request, which is a beautiful Beautiful example of Ephesians 5.21 of mutual submission. But in the end, we'll see as we continue that, well, things just don't turn out rosy. It's not like everything just works out perfectly. Things get difficult and a riot ensues. Despite the fact that Paul did everything he could by setting aside his freedoms and rights to try to reach not only the unbelieving Jews, but also to try to build up the believing Jews who were his brothers. But we'll see that as a result of this, of what happens next, Paul gets an armed escort all the way to Rome, which is pretty cool. We'll see God work all this out in an amazing way. Paul sacrificed his rights and freedoms for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, and ultimately, therefore, for the sake of Christ. Paul was willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ. I am reminded sometimes of some different missionary stories, and I'll close with this. You know, the little illustration about the parking lot was really weak (laughs) because we're called to sacrifice so much more. You've probably all heard different missionary stories of the Moravians who would go in the 1700s and go and take the gospel. They were really enterprisers when it came to foreign missions. And there are multiple stories about different Moravian missionaries. When they heard of the the slavery that was going on in the West Indies, they knew about the slavery, but they also knew that in the West Indies it was illegal to preach the gospel to slaves. White men could not preach the gospel to slaves. It was deemed illegal. But there was a loophole in the law, and that was that slaves could preach the gospel to slaves. And so more than one Moravian missionary, including a a man by the name of Abraham uh, I think it's uh, Benninger, Abraham Benninger. Abraham came over on a ship with John Wesley, by the way, in 1720, I believe, to Savannah, Georgia. But on that journey, lost both his parents. It was an orphan. The Moravians raised him. During that time, he developed a tremendous love for Christ. And when he heard about the plight of the African slaves in the West Indies, he determined he was going to share the gospel with them. And he ran into this legal roadblock, And so he decided that he would sell himself into slavery. He would give up all of his rights and freedoms in order to make sure that these people got the gospel. Now the story has a a good ending, a happy ending. Word got back to the Danish governor back in Europe that this young man was doing this. And he was so moved by this that he put out an edict doing away with that law. And the gospel then spread through the West Indies among the slave population when several missionaries would then go over to the West Indies and began to share the gospel with these 
slaves. Paul gave up his spiritual freedoms, and we'll see here next week, he also loses physically his freedom. I doubt any of you this week are going to be lose your physical freedom. The question is, though, what is God calling you to give up? What rights, what privileges is he telling you to give up in order to get the gospel to that friend down the road, to that co-worker in the cubicle, to that family member? What's he calling you to sacrifice this morning? What's he calling me to sacrifice? What rights and privileges is he telling you to give up in order to minister to brothers, whether they are in a church like ours or not? What's he telling you to give up? What's he telling you to set aside in order to bless and minister to and strengthen the faith of other brothers across this community? So with those questions in mind, let us close our, close our eyes, bow our heads, and we'll close with a song here in a minute. And let's just pray and ask the Lord to give us guidance on how he wants us to respond today through his spirit. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the gospel that we are free. We are gloriously free because everything that bound us, everything that had us in shackles, everything that had us behind bars has been shattered and broken by the work of Jesus Christ. Praise you, God, for what you have done. It's not us. Just like Paul, we want to say, you did it, God. And so we praise you that if we are in Christ here this morning, that the shackles have come off and the bars have been knocked down and we are no longer bound by the law, this law that we couldn't keep and this sin that, 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 that dragged us down. And instead, we've been set free. Not free to do whatever we want but free to glorify you in everything, even if that means stepping back from our freedom in order to minister to others. So God, we praise you for what you've done in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would move within us right now. Lord, stir us up if we've got prayers that need to be prayed on these blue little slips of paper, if we have offerings we need to bring, whatever it might be, have your way with us now. Lord, if anyone in here needs to talk about what this gospel is, and I pray, Lord, they come speak to me, Redeemer. So, Lord, we ask now that you'd have your way with this time as we sing this closing song. It is well. It is well with our souls. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.